So one of the things I love about studying the, the stories and the narratives of Scripture is you get to read about all kinds of different people. Right? So you get to read about heroes like Rahab and Joshua who have incredible faith and who, who do things miraculously and who trust the Lord. Um, you also get to read about people like Achan and deep sinners and the wicked, and you see how God treats them. Um, but this morning we get to read about the Gibeonites. I mean, we get to read about people who are also just similar to us, who are muddling through life and, and trying to do things right, doing it the wrong way, not doing things the best really that they could have. Um, and so that's what I love about studying um, the stories of Scripture is you're always going to find at least part of yourself in one of these characters. Um, but this morning we're going to be looking specifically at the Gibeonites. That's why I've entitled this sermon, The Gibeonites Like Us, because I, I think that we really are often um, like them. So if you would, um, just join with me as we're going to read through God's Word, um, starting in Joshua chapter 9. And it says, As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country, and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard about what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning. And they went and made ready provisions and took worn-out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins worn-out, torn, and mended. With worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes, and all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, "'We have come from a distant country.'" So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How then can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? And where do you come from? And they said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come because of the name of your, the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, and to Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take the provisions in your hand for your journey, and go and meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. And now, behold, it is dry and crumbly. And these wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst." And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. And their cities were Gibeon, Japira, Beeroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. And the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, our God of Israel. Now we may not touch them. And this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. And Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are from very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, Because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded to servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. 
And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua that day made them cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. And as soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek's king of Jerusalem sent to Hoam, king of Hebron, and to Piram, king of Jarmuth, and to Jephthah, king of Lachish, and to Dib- Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me. Let us strike Gibeon, for they have made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. And the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gideon and made war against it. And the men of Gideon, Gibeon said to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up and help quickly to us and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw himself into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and chased them all the way to the ascent of Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azedekah and Mekedah. And as they fled before Israel, when they were going down to the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. And there were more that died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. And at that time Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the moon, sun stood still, and the moon stopped, and the na- until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry, for set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all of Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Bow your heads with me in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you give us the chance to worship together, to read your word, to, to hear it proclaimed, to, to study it for ourselves, and to sing songs of praise to you. Lord, I ask that you would continue to be present in this place. I ask that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears so that we can hear from your word. I pray that it wouldn't just be stories. I pray it wouldn't just be interesting facts. It wouldn't just be life help tips. Lord, would we hear from the voice of God this morning and we leave this place encouraged, challenged, and changed by having encountered you. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. All right, so point number one, um, if you're taking notes, is that God is merciful to those with imperfect faith. That God is merciful to those with imperfect faith. This is something I'm very thankful for. Um, And this is a a challenging passage. This is a passage I've really wrestled with a lot this week. Um, And to understand it, it's really helpful to look at verse 1 and 2 and see how God really frames it. And so it begins in verse 1, and it's just listing all of these nations so all the nations, they, they have heard about what God is doing, 
and they're scared. And so how do they respond? Well, the, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, they've heard about the miracles of what God has done. They've heard about how God destroyed Jericho, how He destroyed Ai, how He took Israel out of Egypt. They have heard of these things, and so what's their response to hearing of this? Well, verse 2, they gather together to fight as one against Joshua and Israel. They decide, we are going to take them out. Let's all get together. Maybe together we'll be strong enough to defeat this God. They're putting together a super team, kind of, or a super villain team, right? Almost like the Avengers and the superhero movies. They're all coming together to try and fight the God of Israel. But then contrast that with how the Gibeonites respond. When the Gibeonites have heard in verse 3, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done, they on their part act with cunning. So what do we see they don't do? They don't join this super team. They don't decide we're going to fight God as well. We're going to try and resist. They acknowledge, well, we got a problem. We, we're doomed. This is over. There's no way that we can stand against God. Verse 24, much later, they, they acknowledge after their plot's kind of been uncovered and they admit it, they say in 24, well, we know it was told to your servants for a certainty the Lord your God has commanded to servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants. And well, we're inhabitants and we're here, so we know you are going to destroy us. And this is a certainty. There's nothing that we could do. And so what they do is they, they come up with this plan. Right? And so verse 4, back there it says, on their part, they act with cunning. I like the way the NET translates it. Um, they translate it, they did something clever. They, they did something pretty clever. They come up with a good plot. They got a good plan for what they're going to do here. Um, and most of the time, this, this word cunning, it's primarily used in the book of Proverbs. Is that, and most of the time in Proverbs, it's always translated prudence. So they're doing something smart, something prudent. They're, they're doing their best. And so I, I think we, yes, this is, okay, this is a little deceptive, right? They're lying, to acknowledge they're lying. That's kind of part of what's going on here. But it's definitely framed against trying to fight Israel. It's a better choice, less sinful. They're not actively trying to stand against God. So I think even the passage is setting us up to think that, you know, Israel or the Gibeon on their part, they're, they're doing the best they can here. Or they're trying to, at least. It's not framing this as if they're doing something horrible and this is a huge sin and they really need to be punished for it. I don't think, at least. And their plan is actually pretty smart. And their plan reveals that they actually have heard a lot more about God and Moses than they originally say later. They actually have to know God's law pretty well because Deuteronomy 21, which we talked about before, gives the, the lists of the laws of how Israel is supposed to go about this warfare. It says, okay, you cannot make, make peace with the nations in the land. And it lists them. And, well, the list, we already got a list of them too before, the Amorites, Canaanites, Hivites, that list all those nations. And the, but you can make peace with people who are further away. And so the Gibeonites know this, and okay, well, he can't make peace with us. If we pretend to be from further away, then they will, because then we're allowed to get mercy. So that's what they do. They grab a bunch of old clothes and old food and worn-out sandals and then lie and say, oh, no, we're, we're super, super far away, guys, so far away. And then, you know, they, you notice they don't answer and say what their nation is or say where they're at. I mean, even when they tell them in verse 9, oh, we're from a distant country and we've heard about it, they don't list, well, we heard about Jericho and I, because that's recent. They say, well, we heard about Egypt 
We've heard about all the old, old stuff. That's gotten to us. We haven't heard the newest stuff yet, right? So it's even part of, part of their cunning here. But then look at verse 14, and this is where some of the problems arise in the passage, and, and this is essentially why their ruse works as well. So the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask the counsel from the Lord. And then Joshua makes peace with them and makes a covenant with them and lets them live. So they didn't ask God what He thought. Okay, they didn't ask, hey, God, you want to check? Are, are they lying? Is this, is this true? Can we make this covenant? Can we not? What do you think? They just go ahead and they do it. And there's a lot to unpack here. And the issue is that they've now made this covenant with Gibeon. And then 18, they, they realize kind of their mistake. And the people are upset and they're yelling. And there's all these problems. Oh, well, now what do we do? And in 18, they say, well, the leaders have to say, well, we've sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. We can't attack them now because we've sworn by the name of God. They made an oath. They made a promise on God's name. Now, oaths and promises don't quite mean as much to us today. Um, definitely not as much as they meant back then, right? Every time you sign up for something online, it says, hey, did you read all these terms of service? And you say, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm going to read all 600 pages of that, whatever, right? We, we don't take, and that's, that's lighter, but we don't take our oaths as seriously now as they did then. And especially, they, they know that they cannot violate oaths, especially when they make an oath in the name of God. Last week, they just read through the whole law of Moses again. They were just reminded that, okay, if you make an oath in the name of God and then you violate it, God's going to kill you. So that would have been fairly fresh in their minds. They just had a big slip up with Achan and with I, so they should be aware of their sin and go, well, we don't want to make God mad now. We need to keep our word. But what in the world do we do? And in fact, much later on in 2 Samuel, um, King Saul actually violates this oath. And it causes a famine on the land, and a lot of people die. So even way, way later down the road, you do not violate oaths that you make in God's name. So Israel's in trouble. What do they do? It doesn't seem like they have any good options, and they're in this mess. And part of the reason they're in this mess and are unsure of what to do is because they did not ask counsel from the Lord. They didn't ask God what He thought. And now, th this is one of the places um, that, that I happen to be in the minority, okay? So you can, you're allowed to disagree with me um, this morning some, um, because there, there's a few other pastors and leaders who disagree with me as well. Who, a lot of people will see verse 14 as key for understanding the whole passage. And they will say, okay, well, this whole passage is really about how we need to be discerning and about how if we don't ask for God's help, then we're going to fall to all sorts of ruses, and then it's going to lead to trouble, and people get upset. Um, and so that's why if Joshua would have just asked God, then they wouldn't have been fooled, and this all would have been fine. Um, now, I think some of that is really true. Joshua, they should have asked God's opinion, and they would not have gotten to do as big of a mess if they asked God for His opinion. But I think that most of this passage, I think the overall point, that's a sub-point, I don't think it's the main thing. I think the main thing here is about how God shows mercy to the Gibeonites. And part of this is because it's ambiguous. It doesn't even tell us that, well, if Joshua would have asked God, he would have said, nope, kill them all and kill them all now. Maybe he would have. I don't think so. It leaves it a little more ambiguous to us. 
Another reason that people bring to say, well, it, this is all about discernment and this, you know, the Gibeonites only get mercy because they strong-armed Joshua and got into it is because they say, well, look at 18. Now the whole country is upset. The people are murmuring. People are mad. At least all these issues. Well, anytime it says the congregation of Israel is murmuring, and that is never, there's not a single point in the Bible that is ever a positive thing. Unless you want to say it here. It's always complaining about God. God, why did you take us out of Egypt? Now we're thirsty. God, are we there yet? It's always complaining. It's never a positive thing. So I don't think all of a sudden now it's a positive thing. I think them being unhappy is revealing that there's also another sin problem. Okay? They're always complaining. And also, look at how Gibeon responds. Okay? Once their lie, once their ruse, their cunning plan doesn't work anymore. What, what do they do? They, they actually give a, a confession of faith in 24, which we, we read. and say, well, we heard of the Lord, and so we feared greatly. And we feared greatly because of our lives, because of you, and that's why we did this thing. That's why we did this. But then look, they go further than that in 25, and they say, now, you know what? We're, we're in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. Whatever seems good and right, do it. They say, okay, we're caught. Yep. We lied. It almost seems like they're even releasing them of the covenant saying, whatever you think that you need to do to us, whatever your God tells you to do, whatever you believe is the right thing, we'll abide by it. We'll, we'll take it. That, that seems pretty good to me, I would think. And, and so how does they're willing to suffer whatever the consequences of their actions need to be? That sounds kind of like repentance to me. And how does Joshua respond in saying, okay, well, now what seems to be right? Well, he does this to them and he delivers them out of the hand of Israel. So they're, they're saved. Now, they're delivered and they're made servants, which is kind of called a curse. But if you look through it, that's what they were asking for the whole time is to just be servants. They're not asking to be equals. They're just saying, hey, just give us the scraps at your table. Whatever we can get is fine with us. And there's actually, there's a lot of similarities. Well, there, there's a few similarities to Rahab here with Gibeon as well, where they both receive their salvation, receive their deliverance, don't get killed by Israel because of their deception, because of their lies. Both of them take great risks to themselves. Rahab risks angering the king and the city and being executed. Gibeon risks angering all the other nations who have now gotten together to form this huge power team to take them out. And they do make them mad, as you see, we read in the beginning of chapter 10, which we'll talk about in a minute. Then they all come to attack them. So they clearly risked a lot to do this. But I, I will say, I don't, it doesn't seem like they have the exact same level of faith as Rahab did. Right? They, they have a good confession. They're confessing. They're admitting the right things. Okay, God's the only one in charge. We're, we're trying to come to Him. But it's not quite as great as Rahab's was. And they, they do lie, and they lie to the wrong people. They lie to God's people. They, they try and manipulate their ways in. They're, they're not coming honestly and just begging for mercy. But what I love here is that God shows them mercy anyway. He shows them mercy that they probably don't deserve. He shows them mercy that maybe we wouldn't show them, that I might not show them. But God does it. And then look at Look at um, 27, at the end of 927. Look, look what happens. So they're, they're made servants, they're cutters of water, cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation, and for the altar of the Lord. They're not just servants 
who chop down their woods and clean up their yards after ice storms, they go to work in the altar. They go to work helping Israel worship God. The, the wood that they are cutting and the water that they are drawing is for the sacrifices. They're being they're put to work. They are serving um, in the church, basically. They're small participants in the sacrificial system. And another um, similarity to Rahab is that phrase, to this day. To this day, when this was written, the Gibeonites were still cutting wood and drawing water and helping Israel worship God. They're, they're shown mercy. Now, did the Gibeonites have the best start ever? Um, is this just an awesome conversion story of their great faith? No, not really. It, it's not that incredible. It's not the best conversion story that you'd put on a pamphlet and, or film it and send it around so you can share it on Facebook and show everybody how awesome God is. But they get to serve God anyway. And this is where they start, but they actually, the Gibeonites come up a number of times. Francis Schaeffer um, had, had a great list of, uh, that helped reveal to me all the times and all the places that God uses Gibeon. So the city of Gibeon, later we'll see it in Joshua, it becomes a home for Aaron and the Levitical priests. Their homes become places where the priests and those who worship God live. 400 years later, David places the tabernacle in Gibeon so they can worship God there. One of the fierce, mighty men of David, the men who slew giants and lions and killed their enemies by the thousands, is a Gibeonite. Solomon made sacrifices and he received his vision from God where God gives him wisdom and tells him what his rule will be that happens at Gibeon. Zerubbabel, when they come back, right, hundreds of years later in the Babylonian captivity, it mentions the Jews and the people of God who get to come back to the land. Gibeon is included in that list. Nehemiah lists them among the people who helped rebuild the city of Jerusalem, the city that's now coming to fight against them. Later, they've been included in it, and now they're building back up the walls. Hundreds of years after this account, the Gibeonites are still there, and they're still among the people of God. Because God is merciful, and He shows mercy even to those whose faith is imperfect. God could have just let them all die out, right? God could have just saved them now and then just kind of let them slowly die out and not repopulate as much as the other people, but He doesn't. They get to stay around because of God's mercy and His goodness. And what I think this story, what it teaches us is that we really serve a merciful God and that His mercy isn't dependent on how awesome our faith is. That His mercy is not dependent on how great our confession is, on how much we understand when we come and get converted. Okay, their story is not similar to Rahab. It's not that, it, it's not that impressive. Their faith and their confession isn't the most amazing thing in the world. But the importance isn't in the strength of their faith, but it's in the object of their faith. The importance isn't that they have all this faith and they got it all right, but the importance is they know the right place they're supposed to go. They know the only place we can get mercy is if we run to the God of Yahweh. And God shows them mercy. For us, it reminds us, you know, we don't have to have awesome faith for God to save us, for Him to be merciful to us. We don't have to have theology degrees. You don't even have to know what the word theology means for God to be merciful to you. You don't have to have a good grasp on how the Trinity functions or know who wrote the book of Hebrews. You just need to know God is the one who gives mercy. And He's the one I'm going to go to. You don't have to get the Bible or understand it completely. 
I, I used to hate those Bible trivia games. I don't know if you've ever played those or played those recently. Um, those especially are not fun to play as a pastor's kid because there's a lot more pressure. Everyone assumes you should know all of this, right? You need to know Zerubbabel and who Zerubbabel's son is and all these bizarre names and random things that are mentioned once. You should have all of those things down. Okay, I, I usually didn't. Bree's much better at Bible trivia than I am, even still today, um, which she's happy to remind you of. But God's mercy is not dependent on our Bible knowledge. God's mercy is not dependent on how many facts we have down. God will save you even if you haven't laid eyes on the Bible, even if you've never cracked it open. Why? Because His mercy isn't dependent on us, on what we do and how awesome we are. He is merciful. We don't even have to pray the, the right kind of prayer to receive God's mercy. Because if it was, if you have to pray these words and do it in this way exactly, then salvation is something we can accomplish and something we do. The sinner's prayer, right, it's a modern tool you often hear preachers use. And it's fine. It's, it's a good thing. It's not terrible. It's, it's useful. It's helpful. One of the problems can be is if you think, well, if I do this, if I, as long as I say these words, then I will get salvation. Well, no, that's, that's not what it is at all. You can pray all the wrong words. God isn't a spirit that you can use magic to conjure and make Him do what you want to do. He's just a merciful God who shows mercy to those who ask, even if they have imperfect faith, even if their faith is not all exactly as great as it should be, as long as we are coming to Jesus, as long as we are coming to the right place. I'm so thankful that the gospel isn't dependent on our perfect prayers. Um, little Calvin, he's two now today. Um, he likes to pray. He really likes to pray because we do it before meals, and he wants to eat his meal. So he knows he's got to pray before then, right? And so sometime, if we're not quick enough to set our stuff down so we can pray, he'll just go ahead and start praying. Um, he'll put his hand, and he'll just, he'll just babble, say some words together, and then finish it with men. He, he knows amen. He can get that part pretty good, right? So most of it's junk, but he, get, he gets the ending. He can land that. I mean, do you think God hears that prayer? Do you? Or, or do you think God said, oh, so, sorry, you got to, nah, not, not good enough. Try, try harder. These words aren't great, Calvin. I need you to get to a higher level. I think God hears our prayers. I, I am thankful that our God shows mercy even when our faith is not great. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament is man who comes to Jesus and asks for healing, and God says, well, I'll heal if you have faith. And he says, well, I believe, but you know, help my unbelief. My faith isn't very good, but I got a little bit. Our God is merciful even if we just have a little bit. And I'm thankful for that because there are some days that a little bit is all that I have left. But our God is merciful. Point number two is that God fights on our behalf. God fights on our behalf. The, the next chapter we see in, in verse 10 that Gibeon pays the price for following God. Hey, the other nations, they come together. They said, well, we were going to fight Israel, but let's go ahead and take Gibeon out first now because they've stabbed us in the back. They've betrayed us. And so what does Gibeon do? Gibeon does the only thing that they can do. Well, it's actually significant too. They don't just say, well, let's do it ourselves. They say, let's run to Joshua. Let's run to God. Let's ask Him for help and for aid. And their appeal, when they say they sent to Joshua, verse 3, Adonai sent to the other kings. Verse 6, they say, you know, come up quickly, save us, help us. Verse 4, it says, come up to us, help us, let us strike. There's some parallels between their, their requests. Um, the, 
the enemy in Gibeon and what they're doing. The other nations are appealing to themselves. They're appealing to strength. They're appealing to their might. Gibeon appeals to the might of God because they know that Joshua speaks for God. And this is another reason, too, going back, that I think the Gibeonites are shown so much mercy because I don't think God had to save them here. I think Joshua could have just said, well, we promised not to kill you, but we didn't promise that we wouldn't let you be killed, so sorry, you're on your own. And if that would happen, we could go, yeah, well, see, that's how, that's how God works it out. It's so smart. They're getting what they deserve, right? Or God could have just said, God could have used this so that they die so that they don't escape their judgment. But we actually hear, we hear Joshua. He doesn't make the same mistake. He goes to God and asks God, what do, what do we do? What do you think? And how does God respond in 8? He says, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man will be able to stand against you. Go get them. Go, let's, go save, let's go save Gibeon and let's destroy our enemies. And what we see here is God doesn't just fight on behalf of Israel and Joshua, but He also fights for Gibeon. He doesn't just fight on behalf of celebrity pastors, on Mother Teresa and for Billy Graham. He doesn't just fight for the heroes of the faith like Rahab, but our God fights for average people like you and like me. And our God fights for, for bozos and liars like the Gibeonites. And what we significant is our God doesn't have to move and intervene in our lives, but He does, doesn't He? Our God could just leave us alone after salvation. After we, we, we pray and we repent and we come to Him and He saves us, He could say, okay, well, I saved you from hell. That seems like a pretty good deal. Um, I'm definitely giving you a lot more than you deserve, so you're on your own till then. See you later. Right? And that would be, that'd be pretty fair. That'd be more than fair. That'd still be merciful. But He doesn't do that, does He? He still intervenes in our lives. He still is present. He doesn't leave us alone and He still fights for us. And look at this chapter. This is the, one of the craziest chapters to see how God fights when He decides to show up. Because when God shows up to fight, okay, the, the fight gets real. Okay? It's, a, it's a huge problem if the God of Israel shows up and He's decided that He's really going to fight against you. In verse 10, And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow. So before the fight even starts, God just throws the enemy army into a panic and just makes them scatter. They don't even have to do a thing. This is like one of the whole things you do when you're fighting armies is you want to get the other side to panic and run away because as soon as they turn around and they're running, then you win and you can just you know, clean, up, clean up the rest of it. Okay, that's what so much of all the fire, all the maneuvers and plans and strategy, it's all geared around get them to do that and then we win. Well, God does that before anyone does anything. He just snaps his fingers. Okay, I'm going to take care of this army. All right, Joshua, there you go. Now you can go get them. I've taken care of it. They're already running away. And that would be enough, right? That would, the battle's already won, but God doesn't just stop there. Verse 11, And while they were fleeing, while they fled from Israel, and they're going down the ascent, God threw down large stones from heaven, and they died. God throws down large stones. Now, we know hailstorms in Oklahoma, right? Okay, I'm learning these. We had a bunch once I got here. We had like six or seven. Um, I would hate to see this kind of hailstorm, the kind of hailstorm where God Himself is throwing these large stones down. I don't think these are the kind of stones that are going to get roofers coming around afterwards to take care of you. These are stones that are going to wipe everything and everybody out. It's a fierce storm, and He does, and it does. I mean, look at um, the, the end of 11. It says, there were more who died because of the hailstones and the sons of Israel killed with the storm. That 
is how big these stones are. And that is what happens when God shows up to fight. When God shows up to fight, Israel doesn't even have to do very much work. God does the majority of it. He goes above and beyond. And God doesn't stop there. Okay? He's already worked two miracles. He's already scattered the army. He's already killed almost all of them with stones down from heaven. But He continues. He, he works one of the biggest miracles we see in the Bible, in the Old and the New Testament. He causes the sun and the moon to stand still. The sun pauses in place. Now, what the heck does that mean? There's a lot of discussion. Um, uh, what, what does this mean? What has happened? Because some scratch their heads and look at this. Well, God couldn't have done that. Well, I, you know, the, the sun just stopping. Okay, there's, this is a big universe. There's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, okay, so what could it have been? So some try to explain it away and say, Joshua was just asking for an omen. He just wanted God to, you know, do, do some tricks with the light and with the, with the moon and then make the people even more scared and realize they've lost. Okay, I don't think that's it. Um, some tried to say, well, maybe it was just an, an eclipse. Maybe it was a crazy solar eclipse or some other thing that would, would have blown them away and that would have, you know, that would have really surprised them. I don't think it was that either. It, it really seems like God, in some miraculous way, I think, um, causes the sun and the moon to, to stop and the earth to stop spinning for a day, which that's a long time to stop spinning. And the reason this makes some people uncomfortable is because, well, apparently there's some bad side effects if the planets stop working normally, right? If they just start doing weird things and spinning back another way or if the whole universe just hits pause. So some try and say, well, maybe God just made the moon super bright so it was bright enough they could see and then it kind of seemed like the day. Maybe that was it. So I'm just trying to say, well, maybe this is just poetic license. Nothing miraculous happened. It's just a really cool way to describe what happens here. Okay, here's what I know. God did something miraculous and something unbelievable and something incredible here. I think He made the sun stand still because that's what it says. Now, how did He do it? I have no idea. What did that look like? I have no idea. Could I explain this to you? Nope. How does that affect the planets and they're moving and wouldn't that God have to do a lot of other things? Yeah, maybe He had to work 10,000 other miracles just to make this miracle happen. You know what? He's God. He can make the universe work however He decides to do it. If He wants to change the rules, if He wants to spin all the planets back another way and then re-engineer and make everything else work out fine and we don't even notice, He could do that if He wanted to. Now, God can do it however He wants. But what I love about this passage is that and this is just another. This is the third miracle that God works. It's the third thing. He goes above and beyond because when God decides that He's going to fight for us, there's nothing anyone can do to stand against us. And I love that He does this. One, He does this in response to the prayer of Joshua. He listens to Joshua's prayer and apparently changes the rules of the universe for him. What kind of God do we serve that would be merciful and that would do that for us? That would do that for His people? I can't think of any other God who would do that. What I also love is not just that, because I don't, again, I, that, that's part of it and how God answers our prayers, but the larger section, if you get a bigger view, is how God works this miracle, not just for Israel and not just for Joshua, but for a bunch of recovering liars like the Gibeonites. That some of the biggest miracles that God does, He does to save a bunch of people that we probably would have all left to hang out to dry. I think that has to be intentional. 
I think that has to be a reminder for us that God is going to fight on our behalf too. God doesn't just fight for Rahab and Joshua and for Israel. God doesn't just fight for whoever your favorite preacher is or your favorite teacher. You don't have to be the best Christian ever for God to fight for you. Just ask God for aid. And there's no end for the miracles that God could, if He wants to, work on behalf of His people. Point number three is that God's work is not dependent on our greatness. That God's work is is not dependent on our greatness. And this is really what um, I think so much of this section is about. And this is something we have to remember every single day. And it's something that we, we can't forget That God doesn't need me to be incredible. He doesn't need you to be awesome. He doesn't need you to be the greatest believer Stevens County has ever seen in order for Him to show up and intervene in your life. We just need to run to Him. For for the the unbeliever, for those who don't know Jesus, listening, watching at home later or here in this room, God can save you just like He saved the Gibeonites. He can save all of us. They were liars. They didn't come to God in the best way. They didn't have it all down. Okay, They didn't march down the aisle and give a profession of faith. They didn't raise their hands and pray the sinner's prayer, but God saved them. We don't have to have awesome faith like Rahab and Joshua and Moses in order for God to show us mercy. God doesn't need us to be great in order to save us. He just needs us to come to Him. So please do, if you don't know Jesus, pray a bad prayer, read the Bible wrong, call God the wrong name. Just don't wait till you have it all together to come to Jesus. Because you don't need to. Jesus came for the messes. Jesus came for the people like Gibeon, the people who did not have it all together. Jesus came for us, for sinners. We gather every Sunday, right? Not because we have it all together. And we're here to learn about how awesome we are, but we're here to learn about how awesome our God is because we are a mess because we are sinners who desperately need Jesus every single day. And for believers, we still need to remember that, that God will show up even when we're not awesome. That even when we don't have the answers, even when we mess up again, even when you lose your temper again for the fifth time about that thing you swore you wouldn't do, even when you don't have the Bible memorized, God still will show up and God still loves and still cares and still goes to work. God isn't waiting for us to get X amount more holy, get X amount more Bible knowledge, do X amount more obedient things, and then He'll say, okay, well, now I can show up in your life and go to work. Well, now I'm happy to make you more like Jesus, but you had to do all this before. We have to remember as believers that man, we are God's children that He loves us, that because of the gospel, He has saved us, He has adopted us, He has welcomed us into His family, and there is nothing that we could possibly do that would make Him stop loving us, that would make Him not want to go to work on behalf of His children. We started a potty training, Calvin, this week, on Friday, so that means there's a a lot of um, pee and other fluids in our home right now. Okay, it's not been um, it's it's not been the most fun, especially between him and Grant. Uh, it's been kind of you know it's been a little rough, but a rough kind of weekend, a couple days. When Bree said, "Hey, why don't we start doing that on Friday?" I said, "Yeah, sure, it'll be fine." I, I'm sermon's mostly done, kind of got it figured out. How hard this, could this be? That was a mistake. <laughs> it's much harder than I thought. <laughs> much harder than I realized. And Bree keeps telling me how amazing it's going, how awesome he's doing. And this is 
this is the best. I go, okay, all right, this is great. I go, Oof. He really is doing good, but it's hard. Hey, potty training is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. And here's the thing about Kate Callett. He, he's still not doing it right. Okay, he's still, I thought we were done with him peeing on me, but we're not. Okay, but my love, my love for my sons, Grant and Calvin, is not dependent on how potty trained they get. Okay, if Calvin never learns how to use the potty, which he will before he goes to college eventually, I'm sure he will get it figured out. But even if he never figured it out, he is my son and I love him. They are my sons and I care for them. They, they offer me very little other than smiles sometimes, every now and then a hug. Okay, but I love them and I will do anything for them because they are my children. You are God's child. He loves you. Even if you never got spiritually potty trained, okay, I don't, I don't know what that metaphor is, but <laughs> roll with it for me. There's nothing you can do that will make God not love you. There is nothing that you could do that will earn His love. The problem for us as believers, right, is we, we can get that when it comes to salvation. We understand, okay, I can't do anything to make God save me. That was just what He accomplished on the cross. But then we can start to think subtly, if we're not careful, we always drift into think, okay, well, He saved me, but now I'm on my own. Now I'm on my own. Now if I want Jesus to show up and answer my prayers, I've got to be something. I've got to do something. If I want God to love me more now, I've really got to, to work harder. I've got to read my Bible. I didn't read my Bible today. I don't think Jesus loves me anymore. We might not say that, but we, the enemy whispers it and we start to think it. There is nothing you can do to earn God's love. And God's work and His love is not dependent on your greatness because if it was, we would all be in trouble. All of us. So remember that this week when you're discouraged. Remember that this week when you want to give up. Remember that this week when you feel like a failure of a Christian because you just did whatever that is. Remember that this week when the enemy tries to shame you with your sin. Remember that this week, remember the gospel that you are God's child and you are so, so, so loved. There's nothing you could ever do to lose it. It's like there's nothing you could have ever done to gain it. And God doesn't need you to be awesome and great in order to be His child and in order to be loved by Him. I'm bow our heads in prayer and invite the worship team to come back up to lead us one more time. Lord, I, I thank You that we are Your children. Lord, that You sent Your Son Jesus into the world to die for our sins and not just to, to get us into heaven one day, but to adopt us as sons and daughters into Your family. Lord, that we are your sons and we are your daughters, not because we are so cute and so lovable, but because you just love us. You love us in spite of our sin. You love us in spite of our mess. You love us in spite of our brokenness, in spite of our anger, in spite of everything that's wrong with us, God. You look and you smile and you love us anyway. Lord, remind us of your mercy this week. Lord, do not let us forget that the gospel is not just about salvation, but it is about our entire life. Lord, remind us that you love us and that we are loved. Because it is far too easy for us to forget. We pray these things in your holy and your precious name. Amen.